0: This podcast was sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. My name is Clay Maitland. I'm chairman of the MMPC, which was formed in order to support the U.S. flag Merchant Marine. We hope you enjoy the podcast
1: and welcome your comments and suggestions. At 51 years old, Marriott Wright had already worked on ships for decades, and her mother, Mary Chevery says she was only truly happy when she was out there on the ocean.
2: I saw a picture of her swabbing a deck. And I said, that looks like hard work. And she said, it is, but I love it. She just loved the sea. She loved to be on the sea. She wanted to sail anytime she could.
1: And those seafarers all know the immense and unforgiving power of the oceans, Shevery says her daughter didn't see her profession as unsafe or dangerous, but on her latest ship she had concerns. She had only worked on the roll-on roll-off vessel for a few weeks in the position known as an able-bodied seaman, or A.B. Wright's mother says she mentioned leaks and holes in the ship's deck, a band-aid approach to repairs, and she said its crew members referred to it as a rust bucket, though its owner has denied any lapses in maintenance.
2: It was the first time she'd ever complained about a ship. She knew all these things were dangerous.
1: The concerns led Wright to consider finding a new ship after this next journey in late September, but that would have to wait. Wright called her mother to say goodbye and boarded a vessel called El Faro, which means the lighthouse in Spanish.
2: Hi, thank you for waiting. Just really briefly, what um, what is the problem you're having?
1: After the ship left Jacksonville, Florida for its regular run to Puerto Rico, Captain Michael Davidson called to report a series of problems as El Faro faced the powerful Hurricane Joaquin.
3: I have a Marine emergency and I would like to speak to a QI. We had a a hull breach, a scuttle blew open during a storm. We have water down in three holes with a heavy lift. We've lost the main propulsion unit. The engineers cannot get it going. Can I speak with
0: a QI, please? Yes, thank you so much.
3: One
2: moment.
1: Just 17 minutes after the first reports of problems on October 1st, 2015, all contact with El Faro was lost. The U.S. Coast Guard would later announce that it sank off the Bahamas. All 33 men and women died. The worst loss of life for a U.S. flag shipping casualty in recent memory. This is The Sunken Lighthouse, a podcast by Tradewinds on the sinking of El Faro, brought to you in part by the generous sponsorship of the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. I'm Eric Barton, a reporter at Tradewinds, a newspaper that covers the international shipping industry. Over the course of several episodes, we'll be exploring the sinking of this ship in meticulous detail. We'll be talking to marine safety experts, seafarers, families of those lost, and the U.S. government investigators tasked with finding the cause of this tragedy. I'll note that we've also invited El Faro's owner and operator, Tote Maritime, to be interviewed for this program. But the company declined. Company representatives told me that they want to respect the investigative process, and investigators have actually told them not to speak to the media. Before we delve into our first line of inquiry, I'd like to take a moment to explain why we're doing this program. There are two U.S. agencies carrying out deep investigations of their own. What can a reporter with a notepad, and in this case a microphone, hope to learn beyond what the U.S. Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board, with all their expertise, will tell us? And Tradewinds covers the shipping industry worldwide. While the sinking of El Faro is historic here in the U.S., on a global scale, shipping casualties are not infrequent. Just weeks after I was in Jacksonville to cover the search for the crew of El Faro, a collision off Nigeria killed nine people. So why cover this one? Frankly, this one happened on my beat, and I hope that shining an intense light on this tragedy will help provide insight that will stretch beyond this one sinking and beyond the particular corner of the shipping industry where this took place. One thing that I learned in the days following the loss of El Faro is that it's been easy to oversimplify. If this tragedy is ever understood, it's not likely that it will come down to just the question that has so often been asked, why El Faro seemingly headed into the path of a hurricane. Catastrophic ship casualties are often different from airline crashes in this way. On a plane, one problem can bring the whole thing down. Brian Starr, a litigator at law firm Squire Patton Boggs, who has handled more than 100 shipping casualties, tells me that in shipping, it's often a confluence of problems, all coming together at the worst time. Brian Curtis agreed with this notion. He's the acting director of the Office of Marine Safety at the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, which is investigating the sinking. He's joined in this interview by Morgan Terrell, head of the Marine Investigations Division.
4: A lot gets baked into the cake of how things happen. It it is a recipe that you have to uh, find all the components of, and certainly it's, uh, as with any investigation, it could be oversight, management, not just what happens in the vessel, but how the outside factors influence the weather, uh, all these things, so certainly it's it's rarely uh, one event caused by one's person's actions so it, it's a it's a confluence of many many issues and events and it also allows you to just the uh, tangential issues you get to identify that uh, may have played a factor maybe not in the accident but or issues that we're concerned about so we certainly we take the big picture approach
2: sure when you put a vessel in a hurricane you have a lot of issues that become interdependent the weather affects the stability the decisions by the crew in those circumstances can aggravate the situation. You have mechanical problems that develop because the ship is rolling uh, dramatically. So, you know, unlike some accidents, might be simpler than others. This would, even with the voyage data recorder, would be a very complex accident. It's even more complex now that we don't have some information that that is um, from from the ship that day, either witness interviews or, or at this point,
1: uh, real-time data from the, from the bridge. Since it is so complex, we'll explore this incident piece by piece, detail by detail. And in this first episode, we'll go back to the beginning, to the construction of this ship. When the news first emerged that El Faro was missing, I look for the basic facts that I look for any time I'm writing about a ship: how big is it? Who owns it? What type of ship is it? And when was it built? And it's that build date that would jump out at any shipping reporter. El Faro was built in 1975, making it 40 years old at the time it went down. At first blush, this seemed like an old ship. But how old is an old ship? I crunched some numbers from ship brokerage Clarkson's to examine the worldwide age profile of roll-on, roll-off vessels, also known as ROROs. And less than 8% of the global fleet of these vessels, over 1,000 gross tons, are 40 years old or older. El Faro was also converted to carry containers, so I looked at the global container ship fleet, and that's even younger, less than 1% in that age range. Most of the world's cargo ships, as the conventional wisdom goes, are sent to the scrap heap well before they reach their 40th birthday. But unlike the vast majority of ships on the sea, this vessel was made in America, and for the combined US-built fleet of ro rows and container ships, some 24% have 40 years or more under their belt. Plus. U.S.-built ships are in a league of their own. Originally named the Puerto Rico, El Faro was built at Sun Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company, also known as Sunship, outside of Philadelphia. Established by Sun Oil to build tankers, it was once the largest shipyard in the U.S. It shuttered in 1989 as now the site of a casino and racetrack. Cargo ships built at yards like Sunship and operating in domestic trades have special government protection. The Jones Act requires ships that carry cargo or passengers between two ports in the United States to be built at a domestic yard, crewed by Americans, owned by U.S. citizens or companies, and registered under the U.S. flag. But in the wake of El Faro's sinking, critics of the Jones Act complain that the law leads ship owners and domestic trades to stretch the lifespans of their ships since it's so much more expensive to build a cargo ship in the U.S. compared to major shipbuilding nations like South Korea and China. Bob Kurt is a veteran of the shipping industry, the retired chief executive of tanker owner MLR Petroleum. He was also the general manager of the Marine Transportation Department at ExxonMobil, and the managing director of liquefied natural gas carrier owner Qatargas Transport, not to mention board positions at owning and shipbuilding companies. He acknowledges that vessel age alone does not necessarily mean a ship is unsafe.
0: Um, It passed Coast Guard inspections. um, So it was um, qualified to trade. Um, So it's it's really impossible to say that age alone um, caused the incident. Um, But I don't think anyone would argue that a 40-year-old ship is safer than a newer ship. So I had... Um, I still have my, my heart in the, in the marine industry and, um, it was terrible to see those 33 people die.
1: You think that, that, uh, essentially without, without the, the U.S. build requirement of the Jones Act, um, for example, ships of, of this age would have left the fleet no. by now? Oh, sure. I think
0: all you have to do is look at the age pro- profile of, um, similar um, non-US-built, non-Jones Act ships and to see that um, there are virtually no 40-year-old large ships out there. Uh, There are some, but um, not too many. And um, it's pretty clear that when it costs three or four times as much to build the same ship in the United States as it does overseas, that um, owners are going to extend the life of these ships because uh, it's cheaper than building new ones.
1: But Kurt doesn't challenge the entire Jones Act, only the section, that requires U.S. construction for ships in domestic trades. And he contends that if maintaining this requirement was really in the national security interest, the U.S. military and U.S. government would be hiring U.S.-built ships for their shipping needs. They do use U.S. flag cargo ships, but they're often built abroad. One of of the arguments I've I've often heard from, from the Jones Act sector Is basically that these ships, um, you know, built at a high-quality U.S. shipyard, um, you know, well-operated over over the course of their lifespan. Essentially, they, you know, the the argument is they have a longer useful lifespan than than say than your your typical ship out in the international uh, shipping market. It it sounds like you're not persuaded by that argument. Could you tell me tell me why?
0: Well, um, the two major yards that still build uh, Jones Act commercial ships are uh, NASCO in San Diego and Akra, Philadelphia in, in Philadelphia. They <clears throat> purchased their designs from Korean yards. So they build virtually the exact same ship as is built in, in Korea. They don't do their own engineering, to uh, which in the old days they did. Uh, in the old days, uh, you could say U.S. flagships were more hefty, um, they had thicker steel things like that but uh, that's not the case they, they build the exact same ship as is built um overseas
1: brian Starrer, the maritime attorney says vessel age is one of the top five factors that he explores when looking into an incident i asked him if he believes that the jones act is keeping ships that are too old on the water loaded question <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, uh the answer probably is yes uh the uh uh, an owner has to uh, a U.S. owner has to get a long life out of a Jones built uh, Jones Jones Act built vessel, and uh, the reasons are uh, are obvious. It, it costs between three and five times as much to construct the same vessel in a in a U.S. Uh, yard as required under the Jones Act as against having it having it built in in, uh, in one of the yards in the Far East, whether it's whether it's Korea or China or Japan, and and that's a that's a huge factor. So you see vessels that are that are nearing 40 years old that have been that have been built in U.S. U.S. yards that are that are still still operating, and it most certainly was a factor in
1: this uh, uh, in this in this tragic accident. But Daryl Connor, an advisor to the Jones Act Industry Coalition American Maritime Partnership, says it is premature to suggest that age or any other factor is the cause of the El Faro casualty.
6: When we hear folks talk about the Jones Act was the reason that uh, the vessel was old or uh, this or that, we think that it's probably an, an oversimplification of the, of the situation and that at the end of the day, age is but a factor in the overall structural integrity of a vessel and certainly, um, you know, it, it, it depends on the circumstances in which the vessel is operating.
1: Connor also argues that the average age of the international shipping fleet is very comparable with that of the Jones Act fleet. And the data generally show that to be true. He also explains that U.S. shipyards have been going through a shipbuilding renaissance, building 41 large cargo ships since 2000. In fact, Tote Maritime, owner of El Faro, has been part of that, by building the world's first LNG-powered container ship at a U.S. yard. One of them was to replace El Faro on its run from Jacksonville to Puerto Rico.
6: If you look at the current order book, there are some 20 large ocean-going Jones Act-eligible tankers, ATBs, container ships that are either under construction or on order in U.S. shipyards. And so I think that um, ship operators are more than willing to make the investments in constructing ships for the Jones Act trades. Um, as anyone would around the world to meet the demand of their customers and the needs of their um, uh, customers in that in those trades. So I think that 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 whatever suggestion there is that the Jones Act inhibits ship construction is um, dismissed by the facts that uh, ships are constructed in the U.S. and then they're constructed on a fairly regular basis to meet the needs of customers.
1: Veterans of the Jones Act market also argue that it's not vessel age that matters here. Vessel maintenance and condition, that's what really counts for safety. And they point out that many vessels owned by the government are just as old as those in the U.S. shipping fleet. Connor, whose organization includes Jones Act ship owners, U.S. shipyards, and labor unions, argues that even U.S. regulators have not raised red flags about the Jones Act fleet's age profile. And Tote Maritime has said that El Faro was well maintained and passed all inspections. And though the ship was about to be replaced on its Jacksonville to Puerto Rico run by a brand new vessel, the company saw years more life ahead for El Faro. That's according to testimony by Philip Morell, the head of marine operations at Tote's ship management arm, Tote Services. He told the Coast Guard's Marine Board of Investigation that El Faro was just as reliable as newer vessels operated by Tote.
2: I, it, I you know, honestly, I, it, it's, it, it's about vessel operations and wear and wear on vessels seems to be about the same. So the, the vessels have been, they've, they've been well over the years and it's, it's,
1: it's And while El Faro was on its journey from Jacksonville to San Juan, Puerto Rico, five Polish workers, a so-called riding crew, were on board the ship preparing it for its new life on the west coast. Tote is planning to convert two ships that travel between Tacoma, Washington and Alaska to run on liquefied natural gas. And while they are in shipyard, El Faro was to serve as the replacement until next year. And still, Tote saw more opportunity after that, hoping there may be additional shipping needs if a new natural gas pipeline is built in Alaska.
4: Do you know how
3: long the, uh, the El Faro was planned to be operated? Was, uh, was there even a plan
2: to remove the El Faro from service uh, in the years to come? The, the plan was for her to operate uh, for approximately 14, uh, 14- 16 weeks, I believe, Uh, and then she would be uh, laid up at the Tacoma Labor Facility, and then um, reutilized again in the in uh, 2000 and 2017 for another 16 weeks. And beyond that, do you have
6: any
3: idea what what the ship was plans were?
6: There was no specific plans
2: for her. There was some hope and opportunity that that she could be utilized in the Alaska trade as for um, heavy bulk cargoes if there was to be a gasoline developed in Alaska.
1: But another sign of El Faro's age is that it ran on steam propulsion, which is considerably rare, though not unheard of. There are new emissions rules around the coast of the U.S. and Puerto Rico that require cleaner fuel, but steamships have an exemption until 2020, and can still run on cheaper heavy fuel oil surely investigators asked that meant it would be taken out of service at that time not necessarily morel told them it just means it will have to be modified to run the steam boilers on another type of fuel one thing that's worth noting is that even though we often see ships taken out of service at a far younger age in the broader shipping industry It's not usually because they are too old to be safe, though safety regulation can influence when they're sent for demolition. Ships are scrapped when their steel is worth more at a recycling yard than it is on the water, and most corners of the shipping industry have spent years in tough times. So that gap between a ship's value on the water and its scrap value narrows sooner for many types of ships than it might have in a booming market. A bulk carrier from a high quality Japanese yard that was worth more than one hundred million dollars at its peak before the financial crisis sold for less than seven million dollars this month. But some safety experts I talked to said age does matter. It gets right down to the steel. How old is too old? Uh,
3: certainly thirty is 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 pushing the limit. We have a couple of ships running out there, uh, the the chemical pioneers at this point in time, forty eight years old and running on a daily basis. Uh, Carrying chemicals, one of the most critical and sophisticated
1: uh, products, going. Yes, the Jones Act fleet is too old, um, and there's no reason for it. That's Captain Bill Doherty, a former master on ro and a former safety manager at Norwegian Cruise Line. He's now a ship inspector.
3: Uh, I, first off, I want to make one thing clear. I support the Jones Act. I want to see a safer fleet. Um, not only have I sailed in it, but my son currently sails. In the U.S. Merchant Marine as a senior engineering officer. So, um, but the bottom line is that uh, ships of the age of the El Faro um, are
1: are sailing on extended life support. So, I, I've been covering the Jones Act for a few years, and and one of the things that I've I've heard, um, you know, well before the El Faro incident was U.S. built ships um, have a Longer lifespan that, that that they really are built and they're operated um, to to last longer than say the average you know the, than the ships in the international merchant fleet where you see you know see a much shorter shorter lifespan. I, I mean, what, what do you what do you say to that to that argument?
3: Um, I don't buy it. I've been around and I, I can tell you that my experience as a marine surveyor, I survey ships from built all over the world and uh, for, for I survey ships from all different flags, and I can tell you that that argument is is, is false. A ship is a ship, steel is steel,
1: and, and what we can't get through our heads is rust is rust. Brian Starr, that lawyer specializing in shipping casualties that we spoke to earlier, says the importance of age in an investigation can depend on the vessel's type and the kind of service it's in. It's a
5: very, very complicated question, but I'd say as the ship ages, as it gets beyond uh, say it's fifth special survey, in almost any type of vessel, whether it's a container vessel or a tanker, uh, you've got to uh, you've got to really start looking at the uh, at what I call the flexing of the steel, the loading of the steel uh, of the ship. The ship is made of steel all over and uh, other other metallic uh, uh, objects. Uh, all fail, and they all fail at different times, and they all. They all take load stresses at, in a different way. Uh, so when the vessel gets to be, uh, I call, quote, old, uh, and that may vary, like I said, a tanker may be old at 15 years old, a, a bulk carrier may be old at 10 years old, uh, depending on the type of service it's been in. Container vessels uh, uh, are probably um, a, a, bit, a bit longer in life, but I would, I would most certainly start to take a hard look at the steel
1: uh, of the vessel. It's clear from their questions at hearings that the decision to keep El Faro in service is on the minds of investigators. And I took the topic of age to both the U.S. agencies that are carrying out separate investigations. Captain Jason Newbauer, the head of the U.S. Coast Guard's Marine Board of Investigation, told me that age is definitely a factor that's being explored. And he said that's because regulations differ depending on vessel age. But Brian Curtis at the NTSB so the focus is less on age and more on inspections of the vessel. Those inspections, by the way, are carried out by the Coast Guard and by the American Bureau of Shipping, a classification society.
4: I think it's not so specific to the age. It's more specific to the inspection regime that it's under. And because of its age, it may have different uh, American Bureau of Shipping, has different criteria that they do their inspections under. The Coast Guard is doing its certificate of inspection and their oversight. Certainly they're inspected to the Coast Guard and the ABS of standards, so, uh, I don't. They and they do. They do account, especially the ABS, account for the age of the vessel and and what they're looking
1: at. So you never look at it from the vantage point of seeking a, for example, a bright line rule as to you know how old is too old for a for a cargo ship of this type.
4: Well, there, there are other ships that are older than that. It's it's really the inspection regime that they're passing the respect the in, the inspection regime. They're compliant with them, and uh, in this case, the ship was.
1: But even if a ship can operate safely at this age, as long as it's well-maintained and it's still passing inspections, there's another factor that I find hard to get out of my mind. El Faro had a piece of life-saving technology that was as old as the ship itself, but that would not have been allowed if it was a dozen years younger. It had open-type lifeboats. In 1986, amendments to an international treaty known as the Safety of Life at Sea Convention, or SOLAS, required that all ships have lifeboats that are enclosed. You might know the ones I'm talking about. They're the orange capsules that those who aren't in shipping will recognize from the climax of the Captain Phillips movie, but those in the industry know because they see them on nearly every ship at port. But SOLUS rules typically only apply to new ships, so the lifeboats on Alfaro were grandfathered in. And they never changed. I asked Toad about this in the weeks after the sinking, and a company spokeswoman told me that all the SOLUS equipment on the ship met regulations and had passed inspections. But Curtis tells me this grandfathering will be explored in the investigation.
4: Well, certainly we're looking at, and the survival factors group will look at all the life-saving equipment, eperbs, the, EPIRBs, the uh, life rafts, these did have open life rafts, and working also with the human factors group, you know, the practicality of getting to these life rafts. And But certainly we're taking a look at that, you know, any grandfathering effects that were in place, should they have been in place, uh, what did they have, what should they have had, and so that'll get a comprehensive look. It's early yet collecting all the information, but uh, certainly that'll get a a close look throughout the
1: investigation. Now to be clear, investigators don't know whether different lifeboats would have had any impact in the sinking of El Faro. The ship had two 43 passenger lifeboats, one on each side, and it had several life rafts as well. One broken lifeboat was found after the sinking, but the evidence shows that it wasn't used by the crew. The lifeboat on the other side of the ship was never found. Abandoning ship always has risks, and a ship's captain, also known as a master, has a tough call to make when he orders crew to board the boats. But open-type lifeboats were banned on new ships for a reason, and that's because they have some disadvantages over the newer enclosed boats. Captain Cormac McSweeney is a container ship master, and he teaches at the National Maritime College in Ireland. He also authored a textbook I keep at my desk, Brown's Guide to Survival at Sea.
2: I suppose if you looked at open lifeboats compared to what the more modern versions would be, the first thing is the exposure to to the elements for um, for the crew members that would be on board the lifeboats. Um, the launching arrangements really haven't changed all that much between any sort of side launched lifeboats. We still have the same sort of systems. The only other big thing between uh, open lifeboats and or totally enclosed lifeboats would be these onload uh, release systems. Um, the ability to release them from inside, and in, indeed the ability to load them from inside the lifeboat. Whereas your typical open lifeboat, um, somebody would have to remain on the deck uh, to lower it to the waterline and then come down via an embarkation ladder into the lifeboat. There really are very few uh, uh, advantages, I suppose, compared to what we have nowadays, Uh, and obviously several uh, disadvantages in regards to exposure of the uh, the, the occupants.
1: Several industry experts I spoke to said it's rare for shipowners to add enclosed lifeboats if they're not required to do so. But they also said that lifeboat technology has advanced over the years and continues to advance.
3: Open lifeboats uh, have been proven to, to be unsatisfactory for, for well over 30 years. And yet, uh, you know, as long as, as long as they pass a Coast Guard inspection, which I, I, I definitely question, uh, they're, not, they're not forced into making the improvements, as we
1: realize through experience that the old equipment didn't work. It didn't save lives. We'll explore more on those lifeboats in future episodes of this podcast. But first, an exploration of the owner of El Faro, Tote Maritime. That's next up on Tradewind's newest and, well, first podcast, The Sunken Lighthouse. The Sunken Lighthouse was brought to you by the sponsorship of the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. This podcast is a production of Tradewinds, which is part of the NHST Media Group, and it's my unbiased opinion that it's the best source out there for international shipping news. Visit our website at Tradewindsnews.com. This program was produced and reported by me, Eric Martin. Special thanks go out to Luke Johnson for guiding me through the process of getting this thing started. Luke's a reporter at our sister publication, Upstream, and is the host of a fantastic podcast called The Bit, which focuses on the oil and gas industry. You should check it out. A note about music the songs Air Prelude and Anima Lee come from Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. Kevin's work can be found at incompetech.com. Other music comes from Purple Planet at purple-planet. And thanks to you for listening. Tune in next time for the Sunken Lighthouse.